everybody to episode 191, 191 episodes. Joining me, my friend, my compadre, it's Barry. Is your pasta intake being affected, Rose? That is the name of this episode. Private joke between the two of us. Barry, how you doing, my man? I'm doing great. I am. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to a huge bowl of pasta tonight as well, Jeff. So. <laughs> I bet you are, my man. Yes. So any truth or rumor that you are recording this uh, in the nude? I, I could take a photo. Not that anybody wants to see it. <laughs> it's okay. Don't do yes. that. <laughs> On this particular episode, we are going to be discussing a match from the past. First time ever, Barry. Ooh, my voice broke like Peter Brady there for a second. Uh, first time ever, Barry. We are doing a match involving Bam Bam Bigelow. I don't think we've ever done one of his matches before. We are going to the 26th of December, 1988 in Norfolk, not Norfolk. Norfolk, Virginia, Starcade 88, True Grit, a horrible name for a pay-per-view, by the way, Barry, as Bam Bam Bigelow faces off with United States heavyweight champion Barry Windham, who was on fire. Go ahead and say it for me, Barry. Fire! Thank you. Along with that, we will be looking at the 10 worst songs of the 80s, because this was mentioned in our beloved Facebook group, Breaking Cafe with Badger and Barry. We'll be talking about that. And, oh, we'll be talking about a lot of other things, including uh, the story of, quote, unquote, Gunny and the Snake. But, first of all, Barry, oh, Barry, I got to tell you about a recent experience I had at a Kia dealership. Oh, the beloved Mrs. Bowdrin and I, we had the occasion to go down to the local Kia dealership. Uh, the Bowdrins here, fans of the Kia motor car, if you will, Bear, we've uh, purchased, I don't know, seven, eight, nine of them. Uh, we're Kia drivers, if you will. So we went down. Uh, well, hold a on young a second. How, how okay. many years? How many years have you and Mrs. Bowdrin been together? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, at the time of this episode drops, <laughs> oh, Barry, a solid twenty-two years we've been together. That's not married, but we've been together for twenty-two years. Needless to say, <laughs> my longest relationship. Yeah, and but I'm trying to do the math on it and figure out how often you're changing cars. So. 22, let's say you eight cars, you're like two and a half years per car with that. Would that be accurate? Well, I'm not as bad as my brother used to be. He would flip like five cars in a year. Oof. But, uh, you know, so, uh, but that was back when he was in the Air Force and stuff like that. So, so here's the story, Barry. Young Andrew, our son, uh, looking to get into the automobile ownership. Uh, and so uh, we went down with Andy to pick up a car. Andy, uh, because of his Asperger's, has a learner's permit, does not have the full driver's license yet, but it's uh, something that he's looking to get into. So we went down there with a uh, young Andrew to the Kia dealership, picked out the uh, the Kia Rio, which is essentially, it's like a Toyota Corolla. And uh, so anyway, good gas mileage, uh, relatively inexpensive. Uh, and it can, it's something we can teach Andy to drive on so he gets comfortable behind the wheel. But here's the point of the story, Barry. And uh, I'm guessing at some point in your life, you've had a chance to, uh, dare I say, uh, purchase an automobile. Oh, yeah. It, oh, one of my yeah. least favorite things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's like yes. pulling teeth. Uh, yeah. Because, of course, it means you have to deal with people that work at a car dealership. Yes. So anyway, uh, so we go down there, and the wife has done most of the negotiations over the phone, uh, which, you know, and then now uh, with, you know, online stuff, uh, whereas you would go down, you generally have to figure you're going to be there minimum six, seven hours, okay? Because... You have to look at the car. You have to test drive the car. You have to haggle with the with the salesman, who, by the way, they can't do anything. Uh, then, then you deal with the the guy that's like the manager of the dealership, and he uh, oh. finalizes the price. And then you go the purpose of the story to the finance director, and he's the guy that's going to type in all the numbers. 
He's going to spit out all the contracts for you to sign and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So here's why I mentioned this, Drayberry. So Mrs. Bowdrin had told the uh, young lady salesperson, uh, we want to get something. Uh, we're going to put down X amount of dollars. We want to stay around 300 bucks a month. Okay. We, we can afford that. That's a, you know, my son can afford that. That's something that uh, I think uh, is in our price range. We want to keep it at 300. Now, Barry, since you've purchased an automobile before, let me just ask you right at the top of the bat, when you tell a car dealership you want to stay for the purpose of this story at $300 a month, what's the price the car dealership is going to come back with that? Oh, it's always going to be above three hundred dollars. Uh, of course, of course. <laughs> it's a single car. Oh, we got it at three fifteen or three twenty. Right. <laughs> it's always, and of course, you've extrapolate that over four, five, six years, whatever you know you you buy the car at. You know, if you sit there and you start, you know, holy shit, I'm paying you know a fucking thousand dollars more than I thought I was going to pay. I'm being kind there. So anyway, so we go in, we do the deal, and so Mrs. Bowdrin, uh, the price that they they give her uh, is three oh seven. Okay, so naturally it doesn't, you know, shockingly doesn't come in under. And so uh, we're all good. We've taken the test drive. Andy's there with us. We sent all the paperwork there. And now it's time to go back and uh, speak to the finance director. Okay, and he's going to print out all the contracts for us to sign. Uh, This says you're going to do this. This says you're going to do that. Uh, So then they get down to uh, now. Let me ask you, did you want any of our uh, extended warranties? And, uh, and my wife says, no, 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 we're not looking for that. Well, you know, let me just explain to you about the 10-year powertrain. I don't fuck it. <laughs> I love that. It's uh, from, uh, from collar to cuff uh, kind of kind of deal. If you, if you go for 10 years, it'll be this much. And so my wife's like, no, I, I, I don't want that. And I'm kind of just sitting there and playing with the phone, probably uh, moder- moderating on uh, the old Breaking K-Fape site because I'm sure someone posted some kind of political shit that I'm trying to delete or something like that. And so I'm kind of half-heartedly listening to the conversation. He's, well, okay, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, if you uh, if you wanted to go, instead of the 10-year, if you want to go to our five-year full coverage, this is what it would be. And I finally said, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, yeah. Uh, well, my wife says uh, 307. That doesn't mean we want to spend around 307. That means we want to spend 307. And the guy kind of looks at me, gives, gives me a little side look. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, needless to say, Barry, shockingly, all that friendliness and all those smiles suddenly fade because this guy knows he is not going to get us to to buy. And, you know, the bullshit is you fucking say you get the 10 year warranty. Okay, whatever. And you're paying. I'm just going to throw out an arbitrary number. I don't know if this would say you're going to pay $50 more. Okay. A month for that 10 year fucking full coverage. Okay. I asked myself after we uh, were done and we're leaving, I said, okay, eh, $50 a month uh, over, you know, say 48 months, 60 months, 72 months, whatever. Who gets that extra 50 bucks a month? Uh, does it go to the dealership? Does it go to the salesperson? Or does it go to the finance director? Is that a little bank that he's making there? Or maybe it's just like the dealership shares it and, you know, that kind of thing. And I started thinking, Maybe I know why he was not quite so friendly. Maybe that's something that's going directly into his pocket that he's now not going to be getting. What do you think, Bear? I do. And I and the reason is, it's uh, you'll find this in a lot of different, and I'm in sales at the end of the day, but if the finance director is the one trying to essentially sell you an additional program that's $50 a month, that means he's being gold on that. You know, that that wasn't the manager. That wasn't the actual 
car salesperson. This is the finance guy. So for him to come out with that, they there's probably an expectation that look, you know, you need to do this 20 times a month in order to hit your goal. So I would imagine, especially if his mood changed like that, uh, yeah. then there would there's a reason. Sure. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, my brother, uh, who uh, I mentioned. Uh, you know, before we started recording here, my, my brother just uh, used to go through cars like, you know, drinking a, a a friggin' Pepsi or something like that. He literally had a year where I think he owned five cars in one year. This is back in his younger days when he was in the five, Air Force. Five brand new cars? or um, you, No, no. But I'm, I'm saying, you know, like he, he was experienced at dealing with car dealerships. OK. Sure. And one of the things that he told me that always stuck with me is when you go into a car dealership, that salesperson is not your friend. They're there trying to sell you something. That's why, you know, like when, whenever they say, uh, you know, they have the Memorial Day or the 4th of July or Labor Day, this, the quote unquote sellathon, that's what it is. It's a big sell. They're trying to, they're not your friend. You know, you're not going to go out and have coffee with them after the deal is done. They're going to take what they've made from you and that's how they make a living. Okay. Right. So. Uh, you know, that's all, it's a bunch of horseshit. So anyway, we, we were able to get the car, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Bowdrin, uh, and Andy very happy with the purchase and stuff like that. So, uh, so anyway, so now moving on, Barry, before we get to our match week, I have a quick story and I shared it on my personal Facebook page, uh, not the breaking K fabe uh, page, but my personal page about a little incident that happened at the Bowdrin household the other day. And then we had a second part of the story. Did you finally get a chance to read Barry, I did. about Gunny and the Snake. Gunny and the Snake, which has now become my favorite children's book of all time, Jeff. Well, Gunny not and the only snake. that, but it was also a band, I think, in the uh, in the seventies. <laughs> Gunny and the <laughs> right. Snake. And so, sure. uh, but anyway, so so let me ask you before I get into the story for the folks out there: uh, Has uh, you ever? Yeah, I know you've had told me stories about Ozzy uh, chasing the fox, uh, you know, or or interacting with a. You ever had an experience with with uh, Ozzy and a snake? No, and that that's a big fear right there for the obvious reason. So no, I've sure. never had that. Yeah. So the way the story starts is this past weekend, I'll hold on swig of water for the working man and woman. We're cleaning out the Bowdrin garage, okay? Mrs. Bowdrin decides she wants to have space for both the cars to be able to fit in the garage because of course it's uh, the the season where the leaves are back on the tree and so the sap and all the other crap is leaking on her car. And she has to watch it, you know, watch the damn thing once a week. So she says, I, I want to be able to put my car in the garage. I said, okay. And so, uh, so we go, we rearrange a few things, toss out a few things, donate a few things. And now we've got the space uh, in the garage. So as we're finishing up and we've been out there a couple hours, I said, oh, I'm going to go in and hey, let the dogs out into the backyard. Okay. Miss Butter. All right. I'm, I'm just finishing up here. And she's got the leaf blower and she's just kind of uh, blowing off the, the branches and stuff and all the accumulated crap that's at the end of our driveway. And so I go and let the dogs out into the yard. And so, uh, so anyway, I go in, I sit down and I mean, I'm not even sitting down 45 seconds and I hear, uh, I hear the boy Gunny barking his head off. And this is not a terribly uncommon situation, uh, because uh, Gunny is one of these dogs that he goes out in the backyard. He wants to let the neighborhood dogs know that he's out there. So he starts barking, letting everybody know he's out there. And uh, usually, you know, he'll stop after a, a few seconds or if I go out there and I say, Hey, Hey, what the hell are you barking at? You're, you're being annoying. None of the neighbors want to hear that. Be quiet. You know, kind of turn and look at me and then he'll just go on his merry way and he stops barking. And so this time he was not stopping and I'm like, what the heck's going on? So I go out to the back deck and I see the wife has made her way down from the driveway into the backyard. And I go, what is he barking at now? 
And Mrs. Bowdrin tells me, well, you know, there's a reason he's barking. It's there's a big snake down here. You need to get down here and get him away from this snake. I said, okay. So I make my way down the uh, steps, go into the backyard, go up to where Mrs. Bowdrin is. And I see it's uh, eh, about a three foot, uh, what you call your uh, your black racers. Barry, are you familiar with that breed of snake? I've heard of that type of snake, yeah. Okay, you know, it is, uh, you know, for a snake, it's uh, relatively harmless. It's uh, one of these things that's known for just kind of skittering in the grass, and it basically tries to get get the hell away from you, okay? And uh, so what's happened is Ga- uh, Gunny has seen the snake in the yard. He's barking his head off. Mrs. Bowdrin's out there, uh, you know, and it's a, well, I want to say about a three-foot snake. It was a good-sized snake. And so I said, wow. I said, oh, I said, so we got a, a black racer there. Uh, they're not poisonous. And so Kim says, well, uh, why don't uh, let me let me go my phone and I'm gonna take the Google pic of it so we get the uh, you know the identification of what it is and all that kind of stuff. And so then she hands me a stick, and I go, well, "What do you want me to do with this?" You know, uh, she says, uh, "Flip it over the fence." And I go, well, "What if it's not a black racer? What if I, in fact, am not uh, Crocodile Dundee here and have misidentified the snake? Uh, I don't know if I want to get that close to it because she hands me a, a branch that's about a foot long." You know, it's not like she's handing me the, uh, you know, the the pole to go pole vaulting where I can sit there and just kind of lift the damn thing over the fence. So then she comes back, takes a picture, and lo and behold, Barry, it says, oh, Southern Black Racer. So, you know, uh, I was very proud of myself for my snake identification techniques. You know, shout out to my boy, the Dean Jeff Gardner, uh, the snake master, who, by the way, Barry, uh, as we know, going through some medical issues. So uh, we hope uh, that Jeff is doing better. Anyway, so Mrs. Bowden says, oh, Southern Black Racer. I said, okay. So then she hands me like a, a, a some kind of pole that's about six feet long. And she says, uh, go ahead. And, so I sit there and start moving the thing uh, towards the fence, okay? Uh, get out of here. Because, of course, uh, the dogs and Mrs. Bowden and I completely invulnerable once they're on the other side of the fence because, of course, the snake would never bother to come back into our yard. And so I take it. I start moving the thing closer and closer. It kind of starts bowing up a little on me like he thinks he's a fucking cobra or something. And so as I'm moving them closer and closer to the fence, all of a sudden, Barry, I begin to hear what appears to be a rattle. Uh-oh. And I said to Mrs. Bowdrin, I said, uh, Mrs. Bowdrin, what is that? And she goes, oh, my God, I think that's a rattlesnake. Now, when you're about three feet away from the snake in question, Barry, these are not the words that you want to hear, okay? And, and so Mrs. Bowdrin immediately uh, on her phone starts Googling uh, Southern Black Racer, which was the breed, had to find out if we can get any kind of information on the thing. And I, meanwhile, keep pushing the snake further and further away from me. And Mrs. Bowden reads it. She goes, oh, so the Southern Black Racer, uh, uh, when it is approached and uh, becomes threatened, will begin to vibrate its tail so that it sounds like a rattle. <clears throat> so we have solved that problem. Uh, I push the thing closer to the fence, and he finally goes under the fence and uh, uh, away into uh, there's like a little gully off to the right of our yard there between our yard and our neighbor's yard. So okay, so he's out of the way. So that's the end of that story. It was kind of interesting. Gunny was barking his fool head off. He was real proud of himself. I uh, I made a joke on my Facebook page that uh, Gunny asked to be called Snake. Uh, you know, like I put up the picture of Kurt Russell as uh, Snake Pliskin, and uh, Gunny says, "Call me Snake." Anyway, so now that story's over with. Well, yesterday I go to take young Andrew into work. And uh, as I get back home, I let the dogs out in the backyard. Well, the neighbor's dog down at the bottom of the hillberry is barking. So naturally, Gunny and Molly have to go out and see what's what. And they run to the bottom of the hill to uh, to talk, if you will, to the neighbor's dog. Well, at this point, I'm like, you know, once again, the, 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 they're, hey, shut up, shut up. 
And so finally, the uh, the neighbor comes, picks it because it's a real like a what do you call it? Shih Tzu, Lhasa Apso, one of those kind of really tiny dogs. And she picks the thing up and she takes it back into her house. So I said, okay, the dog's back inside. Now just quit barking. And so Molly turns around. She begins making her way uh, up the yard and stuff like that. Well, Gunny is still down there and Gunny is is still barking. I'm like, what the hell are you still barking? The dog's in the house now. Quit barking. Well, then I noticed that Gunny appears to be barking and moving in a circular direction, Barry, as if he's circling something. And I said to myself, uh, this is potentially not good. So I go down into the yard and my yard is at a, it's at a pretty good slope, Barry. It's about a 45 degree slope. And so uh, I'm going down the hill and lo and behold, I see that Gunny is barking at a snake. Okay. Now I'm still a good ways away. I see it's a snake, but I don't have any kind of identification on it. So I pick up a small stick and I throw it to the side of Gunny. Uh, And what I'm hoping is that he'll be distracted, uh, you know, look up and see me and he'll he'll walk away. Okay, so I'm moving as quickly as I can at my advanced age uh, down the yard. Okay, hoping I don't fall on my face. And as I get closer, I pick up another stick. And I see that the snake in question, Barry, is not a black racer. It is a uh, snake that's approximately. I want to say over six feet long. It's a Whoa. big fucking snake. Yes. Yeah. And then as I'm moving my way down, and while all this is going on, I'm going, Gunny, Gunny. And I'm screaming my fucking head off. And I see the snake strike at Gunny. I'm losing my fucking mind at this point. Sure. Barry. And I'm sure you can appreciate that. Gunny dodges out of the way. And I throw a, I throw the stick towards the snake. At this point, Gunny sees me, and he begins walking up towards me. I kind of grab him by his harness, and I lead him back up the yard. And I'm looking at the snake. The snake is black with silver stripings, I believe, or a band. Uh, so my initial fear was when I saw the fucking thing was that it was a copperhead because my daughter says yeah. that uh, you know there are copperheads up in this area. And, of course, copperheads are poisonous. My daughter, by the way, Barry, pointing out that uh, they have something in the neighborhood of this time of year is apparently quote unquote snake season around here. Uh, and the snakes are all coming out because it's getting warmer and stuff like that, especially at the middle part of the day when it's hottest, the snakes come out. And she said at the animal hospital she works at, they get like four snake bites a day. Wow. Uh, th- that's how bad the, the problem is. So, uh, so anyway, so I get Gunny back up and I, of course, Gunny, it's like all a big fucking joke. And so, uh, so anyway, I tell Mrs. Bowdrin about it. We call uh, our daughter. We're talking, we're all three talking about it. And Kelly, because Kelly lives more out in the country, uh, you know, as I always joke, when I give directions to my daughter's house, I always say, uh, then you turn off the road, down the dirt road. That's how you, you get to my daughter's house. And so uh, she said, yeah, she goes, um, I think my husband has killed like two of them in the last couple of weeks that were in the range of where they take their dogs out. And their yard isn't fenced, so they have to take their dogs out on a leash and stuff like that. She goes, I got to be honest with you, if I had a, uh, a fenced-in yard, I would not let my dogs out into the fenced-in yard because, you know, because the snakes are so prevalent now. And so because our yard and our backyard, we have so much foliage and tree coverage over it. We don't have grass in our backyard. It's all covered by leaves. And guess what likes to hide in leaves, Barry? Sure. Especially the large piles. So as I posted yesterday on my own personal page, guess who will not be going into the backyard for this foreseeable future, Mr. Rose? So does this mean that you have to take Gunny on walks now? Yes, I do. 
Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, you know, Gunny is not a pup anymore. You know, he's, he's more of an advanced, uh, I want to say he's, let me see. When did we get him? We got him at the end of 2000 and 2010. So, uh, and we didn't know how old he was cause we rescued him. So we figured he was like at least a year. So he's probably at least 12, you right. know? So, uh, so, uh, you know, he's not a pup of three years old who, you know, gets out and, and, you know, like a uh, young Ozzy and wants to go for the two mile walk. Uh, Gunny's not going for a two mile walk <laughs> and either is his owner probably quite frankly. So yeah, Barry, scary, scary day at the Bowdrin household yesterday. Absolutely. Too. And I, I, Ozzy, and you say that too. I, I do take Ozzy on. Ozzy's been on, we're recording this right now. It's about 10 minutes before four o'clock Eastern standard time. At that stage, Ozzy's already had three to four walks. I gave him a bath. Where I live, uh, they've actually got a facility where you can bathe your dogs. Nice. Fantastic. Yeah, but this is such a huge property that I can take them out. I will tell you, one of the biggest advantages of being here versus where I lived, on a daily basis, we were seeing fox, squirrels, deers. We're not really seeing a whole lot where I am right now. And I love that because, you know, when Ozzy would see one of these things, he's a hunter. He wanted to go and he's pulling and it was a fight, you know, and now... Our walks are peaceful. I, I put the, the earbuds in my ear pods and listen to music or, you know, something fun and, uh, and just go on these really great walks. But a lot of people do that. And I've always thought about that, that you have this big backyard and you just let your dogs out. And I guess you go out once a week or so and pick up all the shit that's in the backyards. And, uh, for me, being able to take a walk with Ozzy, I think has been one of the great joys. I love it. I also wonder what I'd be like 10 or 20 pounds heavier if I didn't do that. But, uh, yeah. So do you have an area near your house where you can walk or there's sidewalk? Well, we have, no, we have the, uh, the cul-de-sac, uh, it's, okay. a, it's a rather large, uh, cul-de-sac and stuff like that. And of course I, uh, being a good responsible owner, I bring the bag with me and stuff. Uh, cause certainly I wouldn't want any, anyone to bring their dog and crap in my yard. And, you know, so I'm not going to do that to any of my neighbors either. So, uh, so Barry, uh, before we get to our match of the week, Barry, Guess what I have in front of me here? As recently posted in the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook group, Barry, it's the Snickers Peanut Brownie Bar. You said you have tried this, Barry. I haven't. I I, I really, really liked it. And I like a Snickers bar, too. I find that it really oh, yeah, satisfies. Yeah. And ah, it, I see what you did there. That was it nice. doesn't make me a diva, you know? So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing I'm going off of all the commercials, but yeah. I like it. But I, I like the uh, podcast like, sponsored by Snickers by this week only. <laughs> yes. Who's the parent company of Snickers? Is it like I Mason don't know. Hershey? Let's reach out to them. Yeah. Yes, we should. But uh, or I think it's Eminem, isn't it? I think Eminem is the parent company, not Eminem, the rapper, but the Eminems. On that note, did you <laughs> hear not Eminem, the rapper? How, how that he's our, I was going to say, I'll, I'll lose myself into the Snickers. Oh, wow. Well, Thank that, you. That, yes, I know a few fucking rap songs. Thank you, you ever much, think of, you. of how many of those Snickers bars you could eat if you were taking an eight-mile walk? That's true. So you get that. But uh, yeah, but any case, did you hear the, the news coming out of the... So you haven't been... I don't think you've been to New York in many years. There in Times Square, there is a gigantic... I believe it's two, possibly even three floors. And there's an M&M store, and all they do is sell either yes, M&M. I've actually been to that store. You have okay, and you know it's anything you want will have an M&M logo on it. Apparently, somebody robbed it this week. Guy went in with a knife, which, if you think about it, and having been in that store probably a dozen or two dozen times, 
I can't figure how somebody could get in, but then get out after robbing the store, because it's not like just, you know, you don't just walk out a door. There's a lot involved with it. So I was actually shocked to hear it, but I'm a big fan of that product that you have in your hands. And I, I don't want to say that I prefer it over a regular Snickers, but what I will say is I love the fact that I can alternate and eat a Snickers or eat the, the brownie bar. So yeah. Okay. Give it- so, so as I'm looking to see who the manufacturer is, by the way, uh, it's not Hershey's. It's in fact, Mars Wrigley Confectionery. Okay. Oh. So as I'm looking at it, uh, made in, uh, by the way, Hackettstown, New Jersey, you familiar with that area bear? Not at all. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but what struck me as I was looking at trying to discover who made the bar is the, in bold letters, quote, contains bioengineered food ingredients. Uh, now I'm a little worried. <laughs> what the uh, fuck does that mean? <laughs> you know exactly what that means. It's, mean, uh, I'm going to have a, 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 a sugar-free <laughs> gummy bear reaction to this candy bar. <laughs> we suddenly take a break. You'll know why, folks. Okay, so Barry, I'm now going to try the Snickers peanut brownie bar and we'll get an immediate reaction live here during the taping. Hold on. Wow. This is big, guys. So he is unwrapping the bars. We're talking. He's taking his first bite. We, we're going to sit. You know, we've got 10,000. This is history, folks. This, this is, is history. history. Absolutely. This is a big moment right now. Jeff has got the bar. He is chewing. He has got that first taste in the mouth. But as we all know, it's not just the first taste. Sometimes that second taste is the all-important taste. So Here's what uh, I'll I, say. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago uh, I did the uh, what was it the uh, the Reese's like marshmallow? Yes, you did. You tried that, fan, yeah. and I was not a fan. This I like better than the Reese's marshmallow. I will say that. I tried uh, Reese's marshmallow as well, Jeff, and I have to agree with you a hundred percent. You were a hundred percent correct. Check. It, and it was so weak ass product, extremely yeah. weak. So this, um, I would have this product again. Because this has a, it, it's not an overwhelming brownie. It's it's kind of like Snickers with just a hint of a brownie taste. Would that yeah, be fair, I, Bear? I picked up fudge. So to me, it was a fudgy Snickers. Perhaps. I got and what it. you got is uh, the bar that I have in question. Uh, it is a uh, a Snickers bar that has four little bars contained within. And by the way, Barry, each bar, 90 calories. Less than 100. That means have as many as you fucking want. There so. you go. Anyway. Will you be eating all four in one sitting? Well, I mean, you know. Yeah, you should. I, I depends do. on how late Mrs. Bowden gets home from work. Gotcha. So now it is time for our match of the week, Barry. We are going to December 26, 1988. Starcade 88 True Grit in Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah, the some scope? people they say they, the they say Nor they say Norfolk, Virginia. It's Norfolk. Please be uh, a linguist uh, and pronounce it correctly. We are talking. Barry Windham, the United States heavyweight champion versus Bam Bam Bigelow. couple things real quick. I think we had, uh, uh, am I correct? Uh, was it Tommy Young, third man in the ring? Yes, it was. Okay. And outside the ring, we had, uh, oh, w- w- dear friend, uh, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, uh, representing uh, Bam Bam Bigelow at ringside. Uh, another good guy, friend of ours, J.J. Uh, Dillon uh, in the Barry Windham corner. And I got to tell you, Barry, before you even give us our real, this right here, Starcade 88, Barry Wyndham, into early part of 1989 before he took a sabbatical, whether it was with a girlfriend or whatever. This was prime, prime Barry Wyndham. Wow, he was fucking so good at this point, Bear. He was, and it's and it's a, immediately apparent how good he was, and it was 
a lot of it was he was still dialed in. You know, I think one of the biggest knocks on Barry Windham was that he, he, you know, he's not, he's just never a guy that I think truly ever loved professional wrestling. And that's what we get a lot, but he was great. He was, you know, he arguably is one of the best professional wrestlers of the eighties, but he, you could see right out of the gate. He is, he's so dialed in. He's so on his game, his work with JJ Dillon, first off, what a rapport these guys had and had quickly, you know, if flair and JJ obviously had a great act being together, but that was also developed over time. It's almost like Barry Windham and JJ had it from the get go. And we had them at our fan fest, which was our last fan fest a year and a half ago. And as I found out, JJ was actually Barry's first ever opponent in the That's ring. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. That was kind of cool, but there's a great rapport between the two of these guys. Uh, and I think there's a lot of respect there, obviously. And they really, just as a team, they worked great together. Sir Oliver Humperdinck, and, and we should say too, I, look, I love this guy as much as I've ever, you know, cared for anybody in professional wrestling. Couldn't have been a nicer guy, you know, out of the ring. Just Humperdinck, you'll never hear a negative word about him. Anybody that's ever met him just loved Humperdinck. And uh, there, there's always been the knock that when he was with Bigelow in the Federation, it didn't work, and it didn't. He was, you know, a no. baby face. No, it was terrible. But I got to tell you, in this match, I thought Humperdinck was really doing a good job, and he's not involved, but you can watch him outside the ring and the facial expressions and things like that. Being a babyface wrestling manager, that's like the most thankless job ever in professional wrestling. It just doesn't work for the most part, and it's not going to work. But I thought Hump did a good job. But really, what I thought was amazing, and then, of course, I want to thank the people at WCW, Wyndham and Bigelow had a good match. This is a very good match. But it's also clearly apparent that these two should have had a six-month program because First off, Barry Windham selling for, for Bigelow is exactly the way Bigelow, anybody working with Bigelow should have worked. You know, there, I, I think partly when you look at Bigelow's career and you might say, I, I think I could, I could say, I think a lot of Bigelow's career turns out to be a bit of a disappointment. And a lot of it is he wasn't paired with the right people at times. Barry Windham, this was the right guy. And Barry Windham, first off, his selling for Bigelow, I thought was through the roof, but even other, you know, Barry Windham doing this elbow off the top rope. You, did you see that it, yeah. he misses, but that I mean, was it was crazy. incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. Windham had his shoes on his working shoes. They were great. The really, the only two things I don't think I liked about this match. There is a spot where Bigelow propels himself from outside of the ring. He's standing on the ring apron and this was his spot. He would pull himself over the top rope and land on a guy, his opponent. And he does that to Wyndham. And, and he missed it, the move. No, he, well, I mean, like he hits his, it. His feet get caught. Yeah. Yeah, his feet get caught, but he, which, which happened a lot. But he also, he's got Wyndham pinned. And then at the count of two, just gets off of Wyndham. And, and then makes the motion of the belt around his waist. And the announcers are going... Why would he get off of him if it's only at the count of two? The announcer's not trying to cover this in any form, clearly exposing it. It was Jim Ross and David Crockett and basically saying that doesn't uh, make sense. Jim Ross and Bob Cottle, wasn't it? Was David Crockett? Yeah, Cottle was there too. Was Crockett not there? No, I Crockett wasn't with the company anymore at this point, I don't think. Or David was Crockett? 
I don't know. And in, in any case, but you're right. It was Jim Ross, but it made no sense as to why, why, why Bigelow would would get off of Wyndham. Like you know, and even the announcers are questioning it. So that that part I hated because look, have Wyndham kick out, but don't just get off and then make this this motion to like I want the title when you just clearly didn't pin a guy for the title. That didn't make any sense. And I got to tell you, I, I hated the finish. The finish to me was, it was unimaginative. There was just nothing. And I, I know at that stage, those were a lot of the finishes, you know, and maybe I'm looking back at this 33 years later now and saying, I wish the finish would have been, even if it wasn't a clean finish, just do something different. You know, that, that I hated that. And I, I don't want to spoil it and tell you what the finish is. I'll let you do that if you want to, Jeff. But Besides that, I really did like the match. Definitely one of Barry Windham's better matches from this era. And I think one of the best Bam Bam Bigelow matches. And I think, again, the misstep here being these two should have been together for months because it, it worked. Yeah, and I checked. It was Bob Cottle, by the way, uh, with, with Jim Ross. So I th- this is about a 16-minute match. I think I really enjoyed the first 15 minutes and then... The last minute, it it didn't ruin the match. It was still a really good match, but just it was very. It, it's like watching a really good movie where the ending kind of like you go, ah, that could have been done a little different, or could have been done. But I, I'll give you a very good example, okay? And this, and this just happens to be something I watched yesterday. I watched a movie on uh, that, that I taped on HBO a week or so ago. Uh, it was called Greenland, and it's got the uh, the actor uh, I believe it's Gerard or Gerald Butler. Who was in like 300? He's like been, he's made a bunch of action movies and stuff like that. So, the premise of the movie is that there is a comet that's like, you know, sort of like Haley's Comet. It's going to come by uh, close enough to Earth where you're going to get to see it in the sky. Okay. But of course, it's going to still, you know, completely miss the Earth. And what happens is when it in- enters the Earth's atmosphere, it begins to break apart. And so now humanity is in peril, that kind of thing. And it's like one of those end of the world uh, kind of things, much like, uh, was it Armageddon? And I think it was the one that Dennis Quaid was, was it the day after tomorrow or something that Jake Gyllenhaal was his son. And, you know, there's a whole subgenre of end of the world films. Okay. And as end of the world films goes, it wasn't the worst. It wasn't the best. It was a pretty good, uh, you know, get yourself a bowl, a, a bucket of popcorn or a bowl of popcorn and, and sit there and enjoy the movie. But what I found was interesting was at the very end of the movie, literally the last three minutes of the movie, something happens and it makes you wonder whether they made it or not, uh, whether they the, the, the lead characters survived this comet, okay? And then they did a, a nice little tidy follow-up that, that sort of left the, left the movie with a happy ending. And I found myself at the end going, you know... If they had just left it where you're not sure what happened, I think it would have made it a better movie. You know what I mean, Bear? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and I was like, I really found myself, you know, I wish they hadn't done that happy little tidy, put everything together kind of thing. But I wish they had left it where you kind of don't know. Because sometimes, you know, and I've said this before about horror movies, horror films are better when you don't see what happens, when your imagination is allowed to uh, to run wild. And in this particular movie, I think if you would let your imagination wonder what would have happened, it would have made it a better film. So now that I've tied all that together with this match, I think if they had tidied up the ending better and made it a, an ending, you know, they could have done a double fucking count out. I don't give a shit, uh, you know, or, you know, a pen or whatever, but do it where it like 
you know, kind of makes sense. And you kind of go, oh, okay, uh, I wish I could have had this, but I understand that, you know, and, and that that's the only complaint I really have about the match, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it was a great match, Bear. No, it doesn't, too. And I so part of it was uh, there was you know, growing up as a kid, we saw I had the opportunity to see Haystacks Calhoun a lot, or as some like to point out, Haystack Calhoun. But and with Haystack, you always knew that you knew he wasn't going to get pinned at the end of the day. But he also wasn't winning a lot of matches, but most of his matches were ending by him being counted out because it was an easy go-to. Haystacks is a big guy. He can't move too fast. Wait wait a minute. Are you trying to say a 600-pound guy might have lateral problems? Yes, exactly. And then trying to get back in the ring. You know, he's got to do the stairs. He can't just roll over the ring apron. So almost every match with Haystack Calhoun ended with him losing by count-out. And it became something that you could telegraph for years. And even going into that match, I kind of knew that that was going to happen with Bigelow. You know, I was kind of aware that, okay, you know, I don't think Bigelow's going to get pinned. I knew Wyndham wasn't going to get pinned, but I was like, I wonder if they're going to go there. And that's so we are spoiling it. It was the count out. And I just found it was just really, really cheap uh, at the end of the day. But you're right. Your observations about horror movies you know, there, there's so many different genres of horror movies. And, you know, there's the splatter movies, which is the Friday the 13th movies and, you know, things like that, which basically are about, you know, cutting up teenagers and there's blood and all this shit. But a lot of these really scary movies are where you don't see the monster or the creature, whatever the, uh, the antagonist is. You don't see that for maybe halfway through the movie. Because the buildup by the time you do see it is so great that you're so excited for it, you know? So that was a Predator. very good observation. Predator is the number one example. Enough. There it is. Great. Exactly. Exactly. And, and had we seen, this is interesting too, had we seen the creature, the Predator, in the first 20 minutes of the movie, I don't know if it would have had the same impact. On that note, I have been watching the television show Mayans MC, which is Mayans Motorcycle Club, which is the spinoff of Sons of Anarchy. And one of the stars of the first three seasons, and not a star, but in a recurring role, was the young lady from the movie Predator, the one that was in the jungle that they wrestled. Oh, yeah, the Latin woman. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I, her name is, I'm, oh, I'm going to butcher the fuck out of this one. El Pedia Carrillo. Now, I think I got the last name. I'm sure I killed the first name, but that movie was uh, released in 88, I think, 87. So here we are, 33, 34 years later. Facially, almost the same. She packed on a couple of pounds. Uh, uh, haven't we all? Absolutely. Not, that's not a knock, but uh, facially looks just a little bit older, but almost the same. So I thought that was really interesting. Jeff, I actually saw a movie that I was that a new current movie that received a lot of hype and it's on Netflix called Army of the Dead. Oh, I haven't watched that yet, but I'm uh, I'm planning on it. I saw some mixed reaction. What did you think of it, Bear? Sure. So uh, if you have not seen it, you don't want to hear anything. So I'm not really going to spoil the movie because you may want to shut this off. I hated the fucking movie. Really? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's Dave Batista against zombies. Let's I had no honest. problem with Dave Batista. Here's the thing. I had no problem with Dave Batista. I had no problem with uh, the acting. I had no issue. The movie is boring. The movie is two hours and I believe 28 minutes. 
first off. So it is a clear hour too long. There is a there is filler. So the, the this guy Zach Snyder, and I'm not look, I'm not an expert at all, but apparently he uh, he made I believe Justice League, and I guess he's got a good rep. But he is like the writer, director, producer. He's everything for this movie. And within 30 minutes, I was like, boy, this sucks. This really sucks. (laughs) I just didn't. I didn't like what they were doing with the zombies. And of course, I possibly might have been a little pre-jaded with this because I did watch the segment on the WWE event, which was Backlash, WrestleMania Backlash, where the zombies from the movie were the lumberjacks for one. You heard about this fucking travesty, oh right? don't even get me fucking started on yeah, and, and zombies should, working we shouldn't even waste our breath on it that's how completely fucking ridiculous it was but zombies as lumberjacks and then of course i, I just wait, 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 wait i'm sure. gonna waste it i'm gonna waste the hot okay. take here <laughs> so who comes to uh vince or to triple h or stephanie whoever the powers may be and says hey how's this for an idea we have a match and at ringside, instead of, you know, like lumberjacks, like where you have a lumberjack match, how about, because Dave Batista is doing this zombie film, why don't we have at ringside zombies? Well, so in my and, head. Well, no, no. And, yes. and at that point, I'm sitting there, who's the person in the room that looks at this guy and goes, what the fuck are you talking about? And how did you get a job here? I mean, come on. Well, that's what Pat Patterson, who was a wrestling lifer, would have said. But if you've got non-wrestling people, let, let's look at it this way. There was probably a big payoff coming from either Netflix or the producers of the film. Because getting this spot, which essentially was the entire match, they talked about the Netflix movie. They probably paid a lot of money for that. And knowing that Batista was an ex was a wrestler. Obviously this is his audience. So I get the, the business side of it, the, what made it so pathetic. And again, we talk about exposing the business and look, I, one of my favorite things is when I hear, and this is not a defense of Dave Meltzer because a lot of people dislike him and I, I don't have an issue with him. I could care less, but you know, Dave Meltzer exposed the business. I'll always resent him. In this match, you had actors coming out as zombies who, at the end of the match, would go behind one of the ringside barriers and bring one of the heels back there. And then the announcers would go, oh, my God, the zombies have got John Morrison. They're going to be eating John Morrison. Of course, John Morrison's on television the next night. This is it's we're so far past exposing the business that it is just pure camp at this point. And the WWE from that segment has become, uh, and this is a Vandal Drummond shout out. It's, you know, what, what's that promotion that Vandal Drummond liked that, that promotion from South America. What the fuck was that called? I will Sweet, Lou will better ch- knowledge. Sweet Lou will check in. There was a promotion and they, they used to show this in Miami, Jeff and Fort Lauderdale. It was like the male version of glow wrestling. It was the most extreme type of gimmick with mummies and, uh, you know, a guys who could disappear and all this shit. I completely forget what it's called. And I know Lou will come up with this within any moment, but it, it was, it was a goof. 
It was a total goof. And there wasn't one, there wasn't a two-year-old in the audience who thought for one second that this was legitimate. This was supposed to be pure camp bullshit, fun entertainment. And that's what the WWE produced. That's my final statement. Yeah. You know, what it reminded me of was, was what was, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say the worst thing that WCW did. Robocop. Uh, Robocop's that, that's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, let's have a movie character in a, in a, like a metal suit come and rip the, uh, <laughs> the cage door open, you know, right. and, and you sit there and you went, wait, who is the, anytime there's a movie tie in, it usually goes bad. Yes. Of course. I'm sure they made gobs of money from Netflix yep. uh, because they supported that idea. And I'm sure WCW somehow, uh, got a check written to them from the producers of RoboCop, but it's just always, always bad, and there's no way around it. And since, by the way, uh, you mentioned that you're watching uh, Mayans MC, uh, let me just say, uh, Barry, that I have uh, started watching. And as a matter of fact, this show is so good. I rec- actually recommended this to my sister and my mom, and they're both hooked on it now. It's a, a show called uh, Startup. Uh, that's one word because it's funny. You type startup into uh, the IMDb page. And uh, you, you get like some Chinese sh- uh, show. This is a show that's based in Miami, and it's uh, is Jeff. Is that similar when I when I Google when somebody tells me, "Have you ever seen girls share a beverage?" and then I Google two girls, one cup. Is that, <laughs> is that the same thing that happens right here? The same Google could be correct. So, All right. uh, but but the tagline is a desperate banker. A Haitian-American gang lord and a Cuban-American hacker are forced to work together to unwittingly create their version of the American dream, organized crime 2.0. And uh, this, one of the stars of the, of the show is uh, Martin Freeman, who's uh, he's one of those guys that you sit there and you go, oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, he was in, the, I believe, the British version of The Office. Uh, he was the guy uh, that played uh, Bilbo Baggins in the, uh, the recent okay. movies, The Hobbit movies. And wow, he's really, really strong in this. He plays a corrupt uh, uh, FBI agent or a federal agent uh, that's uh, that's after this uh, this banker that's uh, kind of gone on the lam. And uh, if you want to, I'm like, uh, I think I'm in the, what is it, the second or third season now, but uh, really good stuff. And especially if you've ever been to South Florida, does a great job uh, showing you South Florida. And uh, there's a great scene where Martin Freeman is up on the roof of a building and he's pointing, uh, you know, like, 15, 20 stories up, and he's got this other agent with him. And uh, he's pointing out, he says, see that over there? Yeah, that's the little Havana, okay? And, and that whole, like, you know, uh, three-mile, I'm just saying whatever he says, and that's the little Havana. Over there, that's little Haiti. Uh, and, uh, okay, and then over there, and that's where uh, the beach is, where South Beach is and stuff like that. And he's showing her all the different places in uh, Miami and, like, where the feds don't want to go into. <laughs> okay. That neighborhood yeah, we don't want to go into that neighborhood. That's their right. neighborhood and we stay out of it. And uh, it's, but it's a really interesting Accurate. show. It's called startup. I recommend it. Barry recommends uh, Mayans MC. So, I love this show. So I, now I, Barry, I, let me go on a limb here. Okay. first off, yeah. Uh, let me just finish up. Army of the dead. Don't waste your time. I, I can't for the life of me figure out who actually, cause I know there's a couple of people who actually like this movie. I can't figure out why. Mayans MC, though, I believe I like more than Sons of Anarchy. Sons of Anarchy went off the rails at a certain point where you were like, please just end the show at this stage. But we're still in a very good spot with Mayans MC. And I really, I think the difference was, and I, I, had, the, I had a conversation with somebody over a bowl of pasta last night, Jeff. Oh, we, okay. had a, 
we had a conversation about this and we were uh, dissecting it. And what happened with Sons of Anarchy, especially towards the last few seasons, were there was no characters that were likable. They were all just, you know, there were some that were better than others. But at the end of the day, just nobody you could really relate to and nobody that was really likable. And with Mayans MC, they still have characters that you, you root for, characters that you like. And I think that's a real, I think if you, if you don't like the characters because they just aren't likable, at some point you go, I don't know if I can watch this. And I, I think a lot of that obviously falls on the writing and the creator, which is Kurt Sutter. But yeah, but I do like the show. But Jeff, please continue now. What were you going to say? No, well, I was going to say the sweet man has, uh, has rejoined us here. Lou, Lou, please join us on the uh, actual on-air presentation, if you don't mind. I reached out to Barry and Lou earlier because I saw an interesting question on the old Twitter page today. And uh, since uh, both uh, both you and Lou and myself are, you know, not just wrestling fans, we're sports fans. So the question I posed, uh, Lou, I know, Giants fan, Barry, a uh, lifelong Knicks fan, uh, yep. myself, uh, you know, of course, I'm a, a Cubs fan as well as Vikings, uh, Notre Dame, that kind of stuff. So I'll ask you first, Barry. Barry, as a Knicks fan, who is the all-time guy that you, even though he was on the Knicks, Sure. You fucking, you fucking hated the guy. So first off, let me say my Knicks are one and one in the playoffs for the first time in about the garden 8, as years. the time we recorded this was rocking last night, rocking. And let me say, I love him because I hate him. Trey fucking young, man. He has become a villain. He is the, he is this decades, Reggie Miller to garden fans. And that's what New York needed. New York needed somebody that we can really fucking focus our hate on, much like Philly and Popcorn focused on Russell Russell Westbrook last night. Banned uh, for perpetuity, the Popcorn guy. Yes, but uh, so there, it comes down to two for me, Jeff, and I'm going to give you the runner-up, and that was Charles Smith. And that uh, missed the layup. Missed yeah, the layup. Missed the layup, and that he was his career was done in New York, but of course he did go to Pitt. And he, you know, he had a great career actually prior to that. So I can't hate him. You know who I hated though? Chris Childs. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, of course. The point guard. Yes. Point guard. So Chris Childs and Chris Childs was Linsanity 10 years before Linsanity occurred. He was this, uh, he was on the New York, actually I should say he was on the New York Nets and came out of nowhere and all of a sudden made the Nets semi were competitive and he was good. He was this speedy little arrogant, cocky point guard playing in New Jersey. Well, he became a free agent and I, I want to say he was CBA. He came up from the CBA on like a 10 day contract. And all of a sudden this guy's this fucking rock star. So New York decides to offer him this big, huge contract. And Chris Childs comes to the garden to play and boy, was he a disappointment and was a disappointment in the fact that not only could he not fit into whatever systems were taking place, couldn't gel with his teammates, but he was a cocky, arrogant prick that was making millions. I want to say he got like a $20 million contract or something ridiculous for that time. And we're talking 20, 25 years ago. I don't even remember how long at this point, Chris Childs took the money and I don't know if he ever, you know, I know when he left New York, he probably he didn't got give crazy. it back. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He didn't give back for the shitty play. 
But it, this is what I got from Chris Childs was here is a guy that really scratched and clawed his way to the NBA, played for a contract, got the contract, and decided that he was going to gain weight and just be a piece of shit. And that's exactly what happened with it. So for me, it is Chris Childs. Sweet man, your beloved uh, San Fran Giants. Who is your all-time most hated San Francisco Giant? Oh, let me tell you. We're going to go all the way back to uh, November of 2003, the year after the Giants made it to the World Series and lost to the Angels in seven games. And this one has a little bit of a tangent to pro wrestling. So... In the offseason before 2004, the Giants, they sent three pitchers to the Minnesota Twins for a catcher named A.J. Perzinski. One of the pitchers that they traded was Joe Nathan, who turned out to be a fairly good reliever. Uh, one of the other pitchers was named Francisco Liriano, and in his career, he ended up pitching a no-hitter for the Twins. A.J. Przinsky, on the other hand, uh, was a clubhouse cancer and was one and done. The Giants offloaded him to the Chicago White Sox. And then promptly in 2005, the White Sox and A.J. won a goddamn World Series. So uh, the Giants really, really got shafted. Not as badly as the Gaylord Perry trade or the George Foster trade in the 70s, but it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty shittacular. So, you know, the funny thing is about that, Lou, is the uh, the post on Twitter where the question was asked, as I scrolled through some of the answers, uh, there was at least three to four people that mentioned A.J. Pruszynski. <laughs> yeah. So, apparently, he was not well-liked. With good reason. I mean, not necessarily just for the Giants. I mean, even like White Sox fans. For oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Hated Brzezinski, yeah, exactly. And he took that heel heat and parlayed it into, I think, a couple of cameo appearances for TNA. So, OK, well, uh, I believe uh, Barry will correct me. I believe I have mentioned this uh, at least one time before in one of the previous hundred and ninety uninterrupted episodes, Lord Barron's, uh, that my wife. For the longest time, I, I'm being, you know, of course, sarcastic, thought that Antonio Alfonseca, relief pitcher for the Cubs, uh, that his nickname was piece of shit Alfonseca. <laughs> literally every fucking time this guy who I want to say, like on one hand, he had six fingers uh, because he had some sort of special grip. Uh, but this guy who had a, a pretty good, good reputation with the Marlins and the Cubs obtained him. And this was like, I, I, I want to say this was in a time when the Cubs were actually good, this wasn't like their world series year in 2016, but this was like in the, between I think 2000, 2010 in that, in that sort of area where they were, uh, they were still a good team, but they never quite got over the hump. And seemingly the reason they would blow games is Alfonseca would come. Oh, I need just two outs. And, uh, he would fucking manage to give up a home run or something like that. And I'd be watching the game and I'd go, Fucking piece of shit, Alfonseca. And so my wife used to say, is that his Is that his name? Is it piece of shit, Alfonseca? I said, no, his name is Antonio Alfonseca. And she would go, oh, at this point, I'm beginning to believe, uh, you know, that's her way of kind of like uh, telling me she didn't approve of me referring to him as that. But uh, so anyway, so now, Barry, well, before, Jeff, we, Jeff, before okay. you go to, and I was going to ask you this question. So 
My least favorite Cubs player of all time was a guy that I think did a heel turn, and that was uh, Carlos Zambrano. And I, I was a, I mean, I saw him pitch a couple of games at Wrigley, and this guy was the real deal. And of course, you know, he had his uh, fucking meltdown, and I believe was he <laughs> traded? Nice way of putting it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't even well, well, it wasn't even a meltdown. It was just a complete fucking implosion that I think destroyed his career. But he he wound up with the Marlins after that, right? I believe that's what. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he definitely had some anger issues. Let's just put it that yeah. way. Yeah, but what when he was on, especially in the, at the beginning of his Cubs tenure, Zambrano was the fucking man. Like he was really something out. And then, of course, like you know, I I don't you know, it's, there was some sort of mental issue or something. But geez. So Barry, as I mentioned at the top of the show, now it is time to discuss. Oh, the worst songs of the 80s. Barry, are you ready to discuss some bad music? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I know what a fan <laughs> of top 10 lists you are. So exactly. I always throw these at you. So let's let's talk some bad music from the 80s. Okay, number 10, Barry, scroll down. Oh, it's the Beach Boys. Kokomo from the movie Cocktail with Tom Cruise. Another fave of yours. And I, I got to tell you, I hated the movie Cocktail. I uh, it not, you know, Tom Cruise can't. Did you be, like a nice cocktail occasionally? I do like a nice cocktail, especially if we're uh, in Lutz, Florida, at Glory Days, Glory Hole. I love it. But the but, International Beer Garden. Do you like a nice cocktail there, or are you? I don't sketchy? think I've ever actually. It is sketchy. We know that for sure. But I don't think I've ever actually drank at the. Have you ever had a drink there? I have not. Yeah, we've walked through, which I remember walking through, but I don't think we drank. But it does seem like glory days. And that Mexican restaurant, too, is really good. Yes. That was really good. Yeah, we're, we're getting way off. But, uh, okay, but let's get back to fucking Get Kokomo. back to music. I hated the movie Cocktail, and I hate the song Kokomo. It is a – look, the Beach Boys, the legacy of the Beach Boys firmly cements them in a, in a fantastic position in the place of, of musical history in this country. We can all agree on that. The song Kokomo though, appears that it could have been written by, uh, by, you know, a, an eighth grader. Like I don't see anything in the song that says, wow, some of the great musicians or great artists of all time, at least in America, they wrote this song Kokomo. I think it's terrible. I fully agree with that. Let's just say that Brian Wilson, had nothing to do with this song. Yeah. This song was all Mike Love, who, as our friend Eric Um Cholmensky has pointed out, probably the most hated guy in in the music industry, uh, just for his sheer douchebaggery uh, ness, uh, is if that's a word. So, uh, yeah, this was uh, this is a pretty bad song. Uh, just to clarify, Barry, give us your favorite Beach Boys song of all time. Oh, so it is good. I mean, and you're look, you're right, Mike Love, who I believe is related to Kevin Love, right? The uh, uh that's Kevin news to me. I thought I thought you were gonna say Kevin Nash. He might be related <laughs> to Kevin Nash too. Everybody that way we could trash Kevin Nash in this episode, also. Sure. We could figure out a way to do that. My <laughs> favorite Beach Boys. Well, I tell you, Pet Sounds is is incredible. Absolutely. Uh, and that's Brian Wilson, of course. Yeah, and that's it. I think there's the difference. I Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys were a legitimate band. And I think, you know, I think once he was gone and Mike Love kind of took the reins. I think it became this pop just with nothing behind it. Very shallow. You had John Stamos on drums. You know, it's that kind of shit. How uh, dare you? How dare you trash John Stamos? The great John Stamos. You know what? I'll say this, though. John Stamos is probably our age. 
and he looks like he's yeah, yeah. he's a good looking exactly. fucking, he's a good looking fucking guy. He is a good looking fucking son guy. of a bitch. Yep. <laughs> so Damn I right. will say uh, my favorite uh, so, so your favorite Beach Boy song. I'm sorry, we never got. Uh, it's coming from Pet Sounds, most likely. I don't know. It. it I don't. I'd I am to- going. God only knows. Oh, there you go. Which, wow. yeah, it's just a, a great song that starts off with the lyrics. I may not always love you, you know, which, which is a, a great way to start a song. So anyway, number nine on our list. Now, Barry, I got to be honest with you. This one, I do not hate the way that I would hate Kokomo. Tainted Love by Soft Cell. Great dance track for when you're in the club. And uh, yeah, this, this was a, a monster, monster hit. And you know what? In a lot of ways, still is a monster hit because they still play this. These guys, it's Mark Almond was one. I forget who the other guy was in Soft Cell. Uh, but Mark Almond was the, the semi-famous one. And uh, this song was probably number one on the charts for weeks or months. And I liked it. And you're right. Look, you would hear it in the disco, but you would also hear it in every grocery. It was everywhere. You couldn't escape uh, Tainted Love. I think what I hate about the song currently is the fact that for the last 38, 40 years, I've been hearing it almost nonstop still. And I'm just like, please, I never want to hear it again. And then there's a longer version. There's a shorter. And you get the longer version. I mean, it's, you know, it's 10 minutes of the dun dun you know, did you ever hear uh, Marilyn Manson's version of Tainted Love? I have not. That's interesting because, you know, it's, it, he's a very interesting guy uh, and currently embroiled in a lot of shit that I don't know if he'll be able to recover from. But uh, who, who, who on it, honestly, who isn't embroiled in a lot of shit? Nowadays? Well, and that's a good point. But he, his shit is really stinky and deep. And yeah. I'm not quite sure that he can actually ever get out. It's like multiple rape or sexual uh, molestation accusations from like 10 different girlfriends. So it's not something organized. It's not a hit. There's obviously something there. So I don't know if he's going to come back, but I got to say his version of that song I thought was tremendous. The soft cell did have a second song, Jeff. Everybody goes one hit wonder. They had a second song. Do you remember the name of that song? I do not. Called Sex Dwarf. And as great as that title is, they write boy, it about Barry, Barry Rose. Uh, wait, sorry. Well, I'm a little taller than a dwarf. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Just a couple inches, but uh, literally, but yeah, they, uh, the song she was, said. that is what she said uh, amongst other things, but the song is terrible. And I think those are the only two hits that they ever had though. Mark Almond did have a single, uh, that came out and that also was terrible. So that, I think they are terrible though, for the most part. So what was the Supremes song that was along with tainted love? Where like, they kind of at the very tail end of the song, they start playing this riff from the Supremes. Do you remember which one it was? I want to say it was, you can't hurry love, but that wasn't it. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first thing, but I know that's not the song. It was uh, where did our love go? Where did Thank love you, go? Lou, Lou, always Lou, doing the, the professor. The stellar, no, that's Pete Lederberg. Uh, oh, stellar true. cleanup work here on Breaking Cafe with Badrin and Barry, your favorite, favorite podcast. So, number eight. Now, here's a song I have no problem on this list. It should actually be higher. Joe Dolce with Shut Up a You Face. It's a novelty <laughs> song, but wow, is this a bad song, Barry? Yeah. So, you know what? This, I don't, these are, you know, you can't put a gimmick song. On And I realize it's a song from the 80s, but at the same time, remember all these gimmick songs like uh, Pac-Man Fever 
And uh, remember that shit? And there was yes, a song. I of, do, unfortunately. Remember the song about a duck? There was a duck song that was real big. I, you can't really put. I mean, I remember Shut Up, You Face. That It's hysterical. Hey, you, shut up with your face. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine someone trying to release this yeah. now? There'd be like protest yeah. groups out and stuff like yeah. that. I, I, yeah, the song is terrible, but I mean, I don't think it was ever portrayed as not being terrible, right? Yeah. It, it was like, uh, I guess, a, a fun, terrible song. But yeah, it, it's a gimmick it, song. It, yeah, so number seven, Barry. Oh, I know you like the hair bands. Ugh. We're going Europe. Now, I actually like their song, Carrie. Okay, it's a guilty pleasure song. But a song that was used in, good Lord, how many different 1980s wrestling videos had the song The Final Countdown included? So there, I don't think that there's a sporting event from on any level from elementary school to professional sports where they don't play this song. And I can tell you that as somebody that attended, you know, 40 Nick games one year, 40 home Nick games one year, they played the final countdown in the last two minutes of every single game. I like the song at the end of the day. I don't, it's not a terrible song and maybe it's overplayed to death. Maybe you're sick of it, but I don't see it as being a terrible song. I got to tell you, say what you will about the fact that it's listed as a terrible song. These guys made a lot of fucking money off this song. At least the guy that wrote the song did. Because you're yeah. right. They they played at every sporting event. And, you know, and uh, like I said, uh, I know Memphis. I, I want to say Memphis did this for like the Lawler, yeah. and Tommy Rich yeah. and Austin Idol thing, you know. I think so. you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Carrie was a nice song. Carrie was there, was the complete opposite. Carrie was like a ballad, a love yeah. ballad, but that was a nice song. Yeah. And everybody hates on final countdown. I don't, I don't get it. I like it. Yeah. I, I tell you, uh, I'll tell you a, a story about the song Carrie. So, uh, I started dating around, eh, let's see, 1987. I started dating a girl named Sherry. Okay. So, Oh, Sherry. Well, no, I didn't go Steve Perry. I went to right. Europe with Carrie, but as we're dancing, they're doing the slow dance, Barry, uh, to the song, uh, Carrie, I start when it comes to the lyric singing instead, Sherry. Oh yeah. 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 I had some game back then and, uh, yeah, yeah. out of the park. I'm just going to say, so anyway, a little, little, uh, pat on the back for me, uh, Barry Horowitz style, uh, number six, Barry, <laughs> another bad song. Oh, it's Chris DeBerg lady in red. Yeah, it's a it's a bad song. He doesn't have a great voice. The song doesn't do anything. I don't believe he ever had another hit. And when this song came out, it was extremely wildly popular. But it is uh, it, from a it, movie with uh, Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner, I believe. Was it was it from? Pardon me, as I uh, I'm burping up lunch. Was it what? Which movie was it? Haunted it was, Honeymoon? Uh, no, I want to say it was Lady in Red. Lou, can you help me out? There was the woman in red. No, maybe that's well, what I'm thinking of. The woman in red was a Stevie Wonder right. song from the soundtrack hey. with the uh, Gene Wilder, Kelly LeBrock movie. Kelly LeBrock getting partially naked in that film as well. Well, so there was a positive for that. There was absolutely. The movie, I, I actually liked the movie. The woman in red came out in the fall of 1984. So uh, I know fucking nothing. Okay, I was wrong about I'm that. I'm just saying. But the, the Chris DeBerg song, well, first off, whether it came from a movie or not, but it it's a terrible song. And I was really surprised. It was a number one hit, if I'm correct. And it that was shocking to me because, hey, it's a depressing song. It's not melodic. I just I couldn't see any sort of attraction to it. 
and it just sounds like a guy kind of warbling when he's singing. I hate the song. So speaking of uh, people that uh, music fans hate and that got a lot of hatred buried, number five, oh, it's Millie Vanilli. Girl, you know it's true. Okay, good. Very start your jam. Girl, you Girl, know you know it's true. Ooh, 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 ooh. I love you. Okay. Yeah. So uh I like it, Jeff. You liked it, really? I did. I like it. And I, what's the other one that this they makes have? up for me fucking up about the Gene Wilder movie? <laughs> Millie Vanilli had a uh they had just uh, they had a few so I mean they were obviously on top of the world. That world came crashing down. The one guy, and I just heard this on the radio last week, is playing, I guess, acoustic sets in, in clubs, very small. Yeah, and I then, bet. Yeah, exactly. The one guy died. He was either I, suicide or drug overdose. I don't recall. But the one guy that lived, he, he's trying to, he's, he does have musical talent, but the people who were Millie Vanilli, whatever happened to those people? Because you know, you may hate Millie Vanilli. Certainly the music may appear to be dated some 30 years later, but at the time that shit was happening. Take your word for it. All right. Now, good cause. Everybody wanted to help, but the shit song, We Are the World by USA for Africa. I'll never forget Quincy Jones. Check your egos at the door was (laughs) what the sign said for all these artists coming in. Oh, Barry, we are the world. What a bad song. Hey, let me just say, this song is nowhere near as good. A great humanitarian uh, uh, cause, and it was wonderful because they raised a shit ton of money. But Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson spit this song out probably in about an hour and a half. Uh, I thought the uh, the European, the, the British one, uh, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, way better, way better song. Well, you're so it's amazing because that I just I was writing that down as you were getting as you were saying it. I saved uh, you. I'm having you saved me. But Jeff, you're 100 percent correct. Check. We are the world was not was not a fun song. It was not good. The video wasn't great. And then you looked at what the what the British version, which was uh, Bob Geldof and Midge Ewer from Ultravox. And they did. Do they know it's Christmas time? And that is still a great, that better not be on this fucking list. No. That is a great uh, spoiler song. alert. It's not on. And it. it's the kind of song that when I hear, do they know it's Christmas at this, I, it almost gives me goosebumps. It's, I fully believe the message of that song and it really is a good song. So I, uh, I'm in agreement with you hundred percent on this one. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, just, uh, it's number four. It, it might be along with the shut up of your face. Uh, yeah. Maybe it should be favorite now. We, we we're done recording. You're gonna, you're gonna do a YouTube search on. Shut I, up you know face. I am. I'm absolutely pulling up. Shut up, you face. Okay. You're 100. That should that should be the name of the next episode, Jeff. Yeah. Shut, shut up, up you face. <laughs> oh, number three here here again. Very a bad song. Don't worry, be happy, Bobby McFerrin. Absolutely. Oh yeah, this I, was so I I. I don't, we can go back to our, our most hated songs, but this was my second most hated song, if you remember. And I won't say the first one because there's a good chance that may be one or two, though I doubt it because that was popular. This song by Bobby and McFerrin is terrible. And this is the kind of song that when you hear it, you go, I think I could be a musician. I think I could do this. I think I could do what this guy just did. There is nothing. He whistled. He whistled. <laughs> 
That was uh, his musical yeah. instrument. He whistled. Here's a song I wrote. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, this is shit that my kids in elementary school were capable of producing. Terrible song. Terrible that it, it was so high on the charts. Maybe number one, I don't know. And a complete embarrassment. And I, I wonder, Bobby McFerrin, prior to this, had some sort of a career in, I believe it was jazz or soft rock and jazz. And I don't know if I've heard of Bobby. He, uh, apparently, according to the article, has worked with Herbie Hancock. Uh, he's been influ- Herbie Hancock. Yeah, he's been influenced by Keith Jarrett. So yeah, he's got some he's got some chops. But uh, his uh, his one shot at the at the money was uh, a piece of garbage song. Yeah, but he but he made the money. God bless him because he yeah, probably you know. A, so uh, I tell you what, Barry, we have two songs left. You mentioned that there is a song that you thought was going to be number one. Tell me what you thought it was. Well, I don't know. What I said was when we did the top, our most hated songs ever, I forget what that, we're going back almost four years. Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy was number two. My number one most hated song was Oh Mickey by Tony Basil or Basil. But that was such a popular song and still contains to this day that I wonder if it even made the list. It did not somehow make this list. Yeah. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. See, now already your people's ears are beginning to bleed just, yeah. just from that song. And there's you know, another one. There's another one that you and I could have produced, Jeff. We get yes. drunk one night. We could create a song like this. Uh, you know, and, and, and I will say, uh, without giving a, a spoiler for the top two, uh, I was surprised. And this is more of a personal thing. You know, I, I know there's people that, that love the, this band, but uh, sweet dreams are made of these. Oh my God, did I fucking hate that song? And every time, <laughs> uh, you know, sh- that song comes on, and, and and Annie Lennox has had stuff I really like. You know, the song "Why." That's a beautiful song, and she yeah. she knocks it out of the park. But holy crap, did I hate that song? So uh, anyway, uh, would so so Mickey's your most hated eighty song? Is that what you're saying? I think it's maybe my most hated song of all time. Yeah. Okay. Number two. Now, here is a song that whenever you see uh, songs that are uh, sort of universally hated, especially within the uh, snobby uh, uh, cream, crawdaddy, Rolling Stone, uh, those kind of magazines, they always shit on the starships. We built this city and uh, coming up from the the flaming wreckage that was the Jefferson airplane, uh, you know, although. I love fucking Mickey Thomas as a vocalist, but yes. uh, yeah, this was, uh, this was not good. So I, I liked, I don't, I mean, I like the song. I, I, I don't hate the song is probably the best way. Mickey Thomas is a vocalist. You're a hundred percent correct. Jeff check, which we're getting twice in a segment. That's true. There's nothing wrong with him. They, I starship actually produced in my opinion, and strictly my opinion, some decent songs, some catchy, fun songs. I uh, like the song Chain. I think that's a good, Jane solid was song. Great. And what was the song, Sarah? Yep, Remember? that's another. That's another very solid song. But yeah, you know they, uh, you know, uh, they had uh, lost uh, their way. Uh, I think musically, uh, one of the things this article notes is that they had become strictly corporate rock. Here's the amazing thing. Okay, part of the lyrics to this song were contributed by Bernie Taupin, okay? Wow. How many fucking great songs did Bernie Taupin write for Elton John? Uh, so apparently, right. yeah, exactly. Bernie Taupin provided the lyrics, quote, Marconi plays the mamba. 
That's a Bernie <laughs> Kaufman lyric. Uh, somehow, that's uh, that's a, a million miles away from Benny and the Jets. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, so now yeah, but, it's time for... But you might be right, though, because maybe... You know, maybe either the executives, uh, the record executives, or possibly Starship, they were looking for a hit. They were looking for something to propel them. I will tell you, I saw them in concert, Jeff. I saw them in 1985 in Tampa at an outdoor stadium with one of your favorite artists of all time, Rod Stewart. Mm-hmm, How's that for double bill? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh Okay, now it's time for number one, Barry. Have you peaked? Do you know what number one is? Uh, I don't because you've named some horrifically bad songs that I can't so think. The number one song, okay, I'm, I'm sure they have some sort of justification. When you consider the two people involved in singing this song, I could see where people might think this is a bad song. It, worse than Shut Up Your Face worse than don't worry be happy worse than we built this city <clears throat> david bowie and mick jagger dancing in the street no nah, i don't I know no nah, no way it's not a it's not a great song granted especially considering the uh, the lineage of, of who you've got there the you know you've got two of the greats of all time yeah it's not a good song but come on i mean there's there's a million worse songs not a million but there's probably hundreds yeah, there's, a, there's a, I, I think a bare minimum of a hundred songs worse than this. And, yeah. you know, were they factoring in the fact that, uh, these are two just like rock icons and stuff like that. Hey. Okay. You can say it was a disappointing song. Worst song of the entire decade though. No way. No way. No, no, no. Okay. Barry, next it's time for that new segment called this date in CWF history. We're going June 1st. Barry, what do you got for us? This is a, so this is a, it's a big day. So there's not a lot like of title changes and things like that, but there are some really interesting matchups. And then one of the questions that people reach out to me and our old friend, Frankie Seacrest, when he was, he sent you a shirt. Who? Who? Frankie Seacrest, like cement. Frankie concrete. Concrete. When Frankie was uh, doing shirts for us that had either a program or a newspaper clipping of CWF on the front, he reached out and he was like, so what do you consider one of the greatest cards ever in CWF history? And, you know, for a lot of people, they're going to say, well, it was the Super Bowl of wrestling or it was last tangle in Tampa. And they'll pick out some bigger card, which. You know, look, it had some interesting matches or maybe some people that uh, were from out of town making a special appearance. But I actually chose a card from this date in 1976, and he put that on a T-shirt for me. And it was June 1st, 1976. And I am going to start off, and I'm going to move it on down. I'm going to start off. There were only six matches on this card. And I like that, Jeff, because I don't think you need to have 20 matches to make a card great. That's you know, what they call a future of wrestling uh, uh, Bobby Rogers card. Uh, yeah, and, and it, they do. And then, you know, somehow they figure, you know, the Sheik used to do this in Detroit. He would have 13 matches because you're seeing all these Hall of Fame guys. But often there it's, you know, it's uh, Gene Kaniski versus uh, Mike Lauren, who's Porky the Pig. So you're not getting quality matchups, but you're getting a lot of talent. I, this this card is six matches, but 
I mean, listen to this lineup, but I'm going to start off. I guess it's best if I start off in the prelims and work my way up. First match of the night, Jeff. First match of the night, Dick Slater and Ricky Steamboat versus Steve Kern and Bob Backlund. Yikes. That's a, yeah, that's a good, that's a hell of an opener. So you've got a WWF champion and you've got, on the other hand, the other side of the coin, an NWA world's heavyweight champion, a guy, you know, Ricky Steamboat. I mean, I could sit here and take me an hour to mention everything he's done. Dick Slater, you know, in the 1970s and through part of the 80s, one of the best in the country, Steve Kern. Everybody knows how I feel about Steve Kern. The second match of the night, Jeff, Joe LaDuke versus Pac Song. I mean, the, the Canadian freight train versus the Korean from Korea. And this was a match that two years earlier, main evented in 1974, every arena throughout the state. So, you know, the, the, these guys obviously knew how to work well with each other. And these were actually really good opponents for each other in a lot of ways. And plus, Joe LaDuke, no, no surprise here. Joe LaDuke was a bleeder. So working with Pac Song and the dreaded Korean claw baby on the on the forehead was going to draw blood. Second match of the night, third match of the night, former world's heavyweight champion Jack Briscoe in the third match of the night, the real in, world champion. I yeah, will caught a little heat there, Brian Huff. Brian Huff ready to open up a can of whoop ass on both oh, you and I. Buckwinkle works off Dakota. <laughs> That's my right. Brian Huff impression. <laughs> I have to make my booking in Manitoba. What do you mean? <laughs> yes. So yeah, we could we could sit here and really just with some digs with this. But Greg uh, Valentine, Jack Briscoe, working with Bob Roop and Bob Orton Sr., who were actually the Florida tag team champions at the time. Greg Valentine and Briscoe actually won that being a non-title match. You know, standard booking with that. Is Valentine new to the area at this point that he was teaming with Jack? So he was a, he was new as a babyface. He had been in the area two to three years earlier as a heel, but mid-card heel at, at best. And yes. even here, he, for the most part, was still working mid-card. Though he's a babyface, he would turn on Ray Candy in just a couple of weeks and then have a program with Ray Candy, and then leave the state. Uh, Valentine in the state of Florida never really got any love whatsoever, which is odd to me only because Johnny Valentine got the love of a hundred people. Like Eddie Graham loved Johnny Valentine. You know, Johnny Valentine's last match in the state, I think he was 48 years old, was against Jack Briscoe for the world title. Then he was in the plane crash two months later. But Eddie loved Johnny. So to see Greg get no love, interesting to me. Next match of the night, Florida title versus U.S. title. Bob Orton Jr., who was the Florida champion, drew one-hour draw with Mike Graham. So That was know, the semi-main? No, you still got two more matches. Oh, wow. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, start looking at some of the names that are on this card. The next match, interesting, is a guy who was just coming back to the state, having been gone for a few years, Ray Stevens. So Ray Stevens, who uh, was the crippler. the crippler, returning to the state with a manager, a young Bo James. And Jeff, I was, think we've interviewed Bo James before. I no, think not that Bo James. 
Many will say uh, possibly, I've heard people say the greatest professional wrestling interview of all time. Of course, these are our listeners. We do appreciate that. That's right. They said it. They said it. They said it. But then there was some jack off in, uh, I believe, the mothership. And I think it's the guy from Poland. I have Jersey. Go fuck yourself, I believe, is what his name is. And, <laughs> and he a had a long line of go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he he was not quite as complimentary. But look, at the end of the day, it was a three part interview with Jimmy Garvin that I thought was real. And not because of us, Jeff. I thought because of Jimmy Garvin. It was really good. But next card, Ray Stevens defeating Billy Robinson. Wow, and that's a matchup, yeah. That's, a, that's an AWA matchup right there. This is uh, two guys that had worked together. It's surprising Nick Bockwinkle wasn't on this show. Maybe he was working Manitoba that night. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> he's selling out the high Going school. for the dig. Go ahead. He's, going, he's selling out the high school in Wyoming somewhere. <laughs> yes. So, Yes, but you were, look, you stated everything that needed to be stated when in return. It, the AWA title was defended in a much smaller scale. Yes, he did defend it in, in Japan and Houston, you know, but at the end of the not day. Not a shot at Nick at all, who was a great, just the great wrestler. Nick yes. apparently, as we've heard, was offered a shot at the NWA title. And He's, I mentioned that. And and Nick Bockwinkle would have been a great NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. He was everything that title was about, 100%. But because Nick Bockwinkle was a highly intelligent individual, it was much easier to work in. Beverly Hills, California. Yes, classy too, classy individual. Intelligent, yes. He was very smart to stay with the AWA because he made a great living and didn't have to kill himself, much like guys like Jack Briscoe and certainly Harley Race and Ric Flair did. Uh, so definitely not a knock on Nick Bockwinkle. But there's no way you'll ever compare, successfully compare, the AWA traveling, touring schedule for the champion as you would to the NWA champion. Just can't do it. But again, Nick Bockwinkle would have been a great NWA champion, and it's our loss that he wasn't, Jeff. Absolutely. So, so what was the main, main event? Main event? We are talking Dusty Rhodes, of course, and Babyface King Curtis in a massive brawl with the assassin and his half-brother, the Missouri Mauler. And this match turned out to be a double disqualification. Of course it did, because this probably went all over the arena. I would imagine everybody bled. The assassin was really good at this stage of getting color through the mask. Obviously, Dusty, Curtis, and the Mauler, all three. Willing, a, willing bleeders, if you yes, will. Not afraid, but take into account that you've got this match. You have a one-hour draw between Orton Jr. and Mike Graham, which was probably some sort of wrestling clinic. So you're, you've got, you know, I, I don't know, you've got one, you've got a few NWA World Heavyweight Champions here. You've got a WWF heavyweight champion. You've got guys that should have been the AWA champion in Stevens and uh, Billy Robinson. It, it, this is just a Hall of Fame fucking card. And again, when Ricky Steamboat and Dick Slater are wrestling Steve Kern and Bob Backlund in the opening match of the night, that just tells you everything you need to know. I think this is truly one of the greatest cards in the history of the promotion. Two things. Number one, we may have to get this uh, if you have a. a a printout of the newspaper clipping of this card. We may have to get it on shirts, Bear. 
Oh, uh, I do. I got it on his shirt. I've already got one on his shirt. Thanks. To son Frank. of a bitch. Son yes. of a bitch. So you'll be you'll be sending me that after we're done recording today, Uh-oh. of course. Uh, so uh, the other thing uh, that I couldn't help thinking uh, here is, uh, you know, uh, the Jody Hamilton uh, work in the main event of this show. Probably the kind of thing a good fan that attends the CWF Legends Fan Fest could talk to Jody about. Oh, Barry, that's what they call a segue. Tell us where, when, and how the good folks could join us. Absolutely, too. So we've got a really big event coming up. It is November the 6th taking place in the town. Is it Lutz or Lutz? Lutz, Lutz, Florida. It's in Lutz, Florida, and we are taking place. We're back to what we like to consider our home. This has been our base as far as a hotel since event number one, but uh, events three through six, those four events were taking, just took place in the hotel because it became easier. And it is the residence (sighs) in at North Point Parkway. Something Marriott, Tampa, Suncoast Parkway Residence Inn at North Point Village. It's some configuration of this. I don't know, but this is an all-day event. It takes place. Conveniently um, located across the street from the racetrack gas station, let's just say. It is. And let me say, we have some excellent restaurants. There is a Carabas on property. There is a fine Mexican restaurant, which you and I uh, had a meal at. I believe it was the last meal before you got in the car. Was it the last Fan Fest or the one before that that we ate I think ate it was that? the one before that. I was joined by my uh, my lovely friend, uh, Katie Hardgrave-Turner. Yes. Uh, and joined us, yes. Uh, and she was a era. lovely friend, Jeff. Yes, and, she was, uh, yes. And at the time, I was... I, was I believe you asked with... me for her phone number, and which was strange because you had not yet... Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, that's another. I story was, I the- was, I was. This was one of the characters in Titanus L Ring, which was that promotion I was trying to think of with Dan. <laughs> there was a guy that could foresee the future, so I exactly, was trying to. Yes. But I believe Katie happily married. So yes, I, she is. Was it? But yes, lovely, personable, and intelligent. Everything that I would certainly be looking for in a mate. But uh, that was. A, I thought the food there was really good. Actually, Mexican restaurant. There is a sushi restaurant on property. And I've told this story, Jody Hamilton at the first fan fest, he and Nick Patrick, who was his son actually went and had dinner at that sushi restaurant, I guess spent a couple of hundred bucks and said it was one of the best sushi dinners they have ever had. And there was something just about the assassin chowing down on like, you know, expensive sushi that, uh, I just thought was super cool. But uh, there's some great restaurants, obviously Glory Days, which is a sports bar, but the food's really good. We've eaten there every time. And then there's the International Beer Garden. So a lot of options there. And there, there there's like a pizza place uh, next uh, between between the Mexican place and the International Beer Garden. I want to say there's like some sort of uh, Italian place, you know, mainly pizza and right. stuff. Right. There's yeah. an ice shop that's there. That's right. So, yeah. yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make it a point to actually try to eat at more of these spots the next time we're in Tampa. But I digress. November the 6th starts at 11 o'clock, goes till about 10 o'clock at night. So far signed. And we do have a bunch of other people on the radar. Just being five months out, we're not trying to you know, release all the names right at the moment. But we have the Rock and Roll Express. Ricky and Robert will be there. The Assassin, Nick Patrick uh, will be there. Mad Maxine making only her second FanFest ever appearance. And her first one was for us also. So very excited. And we've got about four more names on our radar. Billy Apter. You forgot to mention Billy oh, Apter. I did mention Bill Apter doing the after party at the end of the night. 
we have a former NWA World's Heavyweight Champion on our ra- – and it's not Tommy Rich. What? Uh, what? Yes, on our radar that we hope to be able to come to terms with. We also have another guy who was a big deal in the WWF and WCW, but a guy also that was big in the state of Florida in the territory days, worked Japan, worked Puerto Rico, and many, without telling you who he is, Jeff, many consider him the one guy in professional wrestling you never wanted to mess with. So, uh, yes, so he is on our radar. And then we have a couple of others. We have a member of a, a tag team that was, I think, one of the unheralded tag teams of the 80s. But uh, this guy's career, he became more known for wearing a turkey suit and also becoming something to do with lasers. So uh, that's, that's a pretty broad hint. I was going to say that's I think it's an easy <laughs> yeah. one to kind of figure out who I'm talking about. But uh, we're just waiting to sign paperwork on that one. That one should also be part of what we're doing. I encourage you visit our Facebook page, which is CWF Legends Fan Fest. You can find us on there on Facebook, CWF Legends Fan Fest. You can get all your tickets. You can book your hotel through a link on there. You can also find us in the Breaking Kayfabe Facebook group, or you can go to CWF Archives Facebook group. We've got the the ticket links in there, or you can contact me directly. We want to see you there. I believe, Jeff, and I might be wrong, but I, I get to see everybody who's bought tickets. I get to see the names. I believe this will be the largest contingent of brother shippers ever under a single roof. This is about, I want to say it's double possibly what we did at the last event, just to give you an idea. So I'm super excited. If you can make it, if you're a brother shipper, this is what we encourage. Jeff and I are in preliminary talks of trying to do something just for brother shippers, not for CWF fans or, you know, just for brother shippers. So we can all get in and just have a good time together. So more details to come on that, hopefully. Right, Jeff? We're going to have to kayfabe the folks. We usually break kayfabe, but on this, we're, we're kayfabe it because, because high-level negotiations are ongoing. Let's just say that. And uh, yes, yes. So uh, perhaps we will be doing something. Ah, so anyway, so now I believe it's time for us to cross that old finish line, Bear. What do you say? This was a fun episode. I don't it know. was, as always. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, so on behalf of our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, putting the hate out there for A.J. Perzinski. I can't blame him. Can't blame him at all, Barry. And my co-host, Barry Rose, I will only say that I am Jeff Bowder, and they call me the booker. Now, will that book be available at the CWF Legends Fan Fest? Let's just say negotiations are ongoing for you to get your own personalized autographed copy of that book, potentially, potentially. So until next week, take it home, Lou. Oh, shit. I forgot to fucking say we're part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Ahoy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we have a guest, Barry. We have a guest? He is a, he is a, it's it's the great one himself, Brian Last, joining us. Oh, Oh, great one. How art thou? I didn't realize we really were doing it now. I mean, that was my uh, one for the Christmas reel. Hello. Okay. Ahoy. <laughs> Ahoy, Tank Abbott. How are you? 
Thank you for joining us. Oh, we bring you news. Brian, would you like to share why you're here with the listeners? I certainly am. And uh, of course, at the start, let's thank everyone for your continual support of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. It has become such a popular show and has such a dedicated fan base. And it's one of the reasons why, probably the primary reason why, we're here today with this little whatever this is that we're recording here. It started off awful, and now it's going pretty, pretty nice. But what we wanted to say is Breaking Kayfabe has been great. It's been a great run. And it's over. We're but leaving. But all good things no. must come to an end. And starting Tuesday, uh, you, you hear Jeff and Barry are on the line, so they're okay with this. Please continue to subscribe to this feed. The Hannibal and Evan Ginsberg show starts yes. Tuesday. <laughs> wherever you Special download. Guest, Bruce Mitchell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. So what we're here to say is, um, all kidding aside, due to the overwhelming support of the show and how dedicated a fan base there is for this show and the constant demand, and I hear it, I know Jeff and Barry hear it uh, even more than I do, even Lou hears it, but Lou hears everything. Okay. He's got great ears. He's a producer, as it were. But there's a clamoring for more Jeff and Barry content. And I think right now is a great time for us to try to find a way to deliver more Jeff and Barry content. And Breaking Kayfabe has been steady, rock steady, every single week for so long. And still people listen to it. They finish that show and they say, I need more. And now you can have more because starting on June 3rd, that's right. June 3rd, June 2021. 3rd. Jeff, scream it one more time. June 3rd. That was what some people may call a scream, what others may call a man gasping for air. But June 3rd, the brand new Breaking Kayfabe with Baldron and Barry Patreon account is up and running. And this is, first of all, a great way for everyone who enjoys this show, enjoys what we produce each and every week with Breaking Kayfabe. This is a great way for you to support the production of the show. Obviously, everyone behind the show, including, of course, Lou Kippelman, and, of course, Jeff and Barry work really hard on this show. So this is a great way for you, if you enjoyed this show each and every week, to support this show and, at the same time, get fantastic bonus content. And, Jeff, I'm going to turn it over to you because when this launches on June 3rd, we are launching right away with a fantastic bonus episode of Breaking Kayfabe. Absolutely available only to our uh, beloved Patreon subscribers. I can tell you in the very first episode, you will be getting an exclusive interview that we did with former NWA world champion Ronnie Hands of Stone Garvin. And Barry and I, and boy, we had fun doing this, we'll be reviewing three matches, not one, not two, mm, boy, but three, three matches of people we don't like. Yes, that's right. We uh, review a match of the Hulksters. We review a Shawn Michaels match. Barry, big fan of Shawn Michaels, are you? Oh, Shawn Did you see the photo of Shawn Michaels wearing the Marine t-shirt? Yes, I did. Oh, <laughs> very <laughs> subtle, very subtle. And then finally... Oh, Barry, my love for the Road Warriors, the greatest tag team of all time. And yes, we're going to be reviewing one of their matches. So, folks, you know, we get the Ronnie Garvin interview for you. We get the three match reviews, which is 
one, two, three times more than usual. And uh, it's going to be tons of fun. We've got lots of stuff in the works uh, as far as bonus content that you'll be getting as a Patreon subscriber. Uh, we'll be doing in the future, I will say, maybe by Patreon two or three, Barry, we do the drunken episode. Oh, Yes, yes. Folks have wanted to hear me, the booker, half in the bag. Barry will be half drawn. Well, maybe it's not drinking that Barry will be doing. Not that I'm saying anything, mind you. But uh, <laughs> we look forward to doing more additional content. You know, maybe if Barry uses something other than alcohol uh, to get himself going, maybe there'll be some pasta munching going on. Oh, Barry, did I just say that? You did say that too, Jeff, and and I can guarantee. So it, there's a great chance I will not be drinking on that episode, uh, but I, I I might feel the effects of, oh, of certain okay. things. So on that note, I'm probably going to have a full stash of pizza, pasta, and candy. Oh, you said pe- uh, full stash. I thought you were going full, <laughs> full stash. Absolutely, yes. but uh, I'm real excited, Jeff. This whole is it. And here's here's the best part. I've been calling this thing uh, Patreon for the last three years. It's Patreon, apparently, so that's exciting. But well, Jeff, everybody, we will everybody accept either. Maybe we'll or maybe either. not. I, I still get people yell at me saying you're pronouncing it wrong. But still, well, I, pronounce it. I could be wrong, and everyone else could be right. Yeah, we have no idea, and it truthfully doesn't matter. These are the three best friends you never knew you had. And now you're going to get a little something extra every single month from us. Jeff, I'm super excited. Lou, Lou, you've got to be excited, right? Oh, you bet I am. You can just tell by the trembling in his voice. (laughs) This is my Steve Regal impersonation. (laughs) I am Mr. Electricity. Well, guys, let me just jump in because I don't think we've said it. But on June 3rd, the destination, the place that everyone can go, patreon.com slash Baldrin and Barry patreon.com slash Baldrin and Barry of course b-o-w-d-r-e-n-a-n-d-b-a-r-r-y Baldrin and Barry go to Patreon the initial tier is available right now for five dollars a month you support this show and you start getting bonus content with the first show which is up right here on June 3rd it's a great deal and we're going to have lots of fun with this. We have, uh, you know, we're we're potentially looking at uh, some interviews that will only be available, much like the Ronnie Garvin interview, for you, the Patreon subscribers. You know, we gave away 190-plus episodes of the free shit. Come on, people. Open up the wallet. $5, as was pointed out to me by a <clears throat> great man yesterday. That's like $1 a week. Plus a couple of, <laughs> a couple of cents. So, you know, maybe that's not too much to ask for you. Give up the fucking Red Bull one week. You know what I mean? Uh, throw in a dollar a week to me and Barry. I'm retired. My wife's starting to nag me. Okay. So we're asking $5 a month for your Patreon uh, subscription. And we certainly would encourage you. And we hope to uh, have lots of fun doing this. And we're going to find out who's a Greenbaum and who's not a Greenbaum. If you know what I mean, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. So Jeff, I'm making a checklist right now. So on the new Patreon or Patreon episodes, we will have beverages, adult beverages, check, check. All right. Nudity. Uh, we are, we have talked and I don't know if I've cleared this with Brian yet. Uh Oh, we are talking about doing an all nude episode. Now this will not be a video feed. Quite frankly, no one oh, wants to see that. No, no. but uh, you know, so that's the kind of stuff we could do. And, uh, you know, we'll do a top 10 list. 
We'll have uh, drunken shows. Uh, you know, maybe I'll tell uh, Barry. You're going to throw this out there. The greatest story ever told. Should I tell that on a Patreon episode? I think, but you got. There's got to be a disclaimer when you wind up telling the story. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure Brian will come up to me. Uh, watch the copyright violations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I still haven't gotten past. Put down the Red Bull. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Thursday, June third. We're gonna say in the morning on the eastern side of the United States. How's that, Lou? Is that acceptable? So. Look for us sometime the morning of the third where uh, we're going to be coming out the first, uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, Mr. Last, the first Thursday of every month, correct, Amundo? Indeed. That will be the first content drop. It'll be steady going forward. $5 tier, you're guaranteed at least a show the first Thursday of every month. And again, this is stuff not everyone's going to hear. So you can go on the uh, the old Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook page and go, wow, wow, that Patreon episode, it was so much fun. Fuck all you guys that didn't bother to subscribe. I would encourage you to do that. 